Hello, welcome back, you guys, to Inspired Babes Let's Chat Podcast. So today we're on episode 56, and I had my friend Jamie Smart on, and we dive right into mental health. Now, you know, I feel like this topic needs to be talked about more, right? And, you know, mental health can include our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. And, you know, it affects how we think, we feel, we act. And it also helps determine how we handle our stress, um, how we relate to others and make choices in life, right? And, you know, it can start at a really early age when we're young or as we're adults, right? And so I'm really excited to have Jamie on because she's finishing her master's degree in communication studies at Utah State University, and she has spent her career researching mental health. So so it is like her jam, right? (laughs) And it also includes substance use and the importance of having having a social supper. So her primary goal is to start conversations about mental health and normalize talking about it. Um, You know, in addition, she is striving to challenge the stereotypes around mental illness and addictions and to provide tools for everyone to better their mental health, right? So with all that being said, just buckle up for this amazing episode and please share this with your friends and family and post it in your Instagram stories, your Facebook stories, and you can tag me and make sure to go over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you get notified every time there's a new podcast rolling out, which is weekly. And then you can give it a five-star rating, write a review. All the good things would be so appreciated. And let's do this, guys. So Jamie is one of my best friend's sisters, and I am really thrilled to have her on today because I've been wanting to focus um, one of my episodes, and even probably I'll do more, right, in the future, but on mental health, because I feel that it is so huge right now, especially with the pandemic last year, Um, suicide rates have gone up. I know you have done so many different studies. Um, You're working on your master's in communication, right? Yeah, communication studies. And my focus is on health communication, so mental health specifically. Yeah, and I know you've we've, you've shared with me that you're doing studies. You've done studies on anxiety and depression, PTSD, and in you're finishing your thesis in um, the use of alcohol. Yes, uh-huh. with people coping in the use of alcohol, and so I wanted to dive into all of that because again, it is such a huge topic right now, but also. Not very much, like not a lot of people talk a lot about it, but it's big. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. And I, and it seems like it's starting to get talked about a lot more than like our parents' generation or their parents' generation. It's becoming a little bit more of a conversation, but it's still so stigmatized that it it's not as effective of a conversation as we could be having. Mm, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I shared on my last episode and I never thought I would share this before, but I had a moment last year where I was really struggling with anxiety and depression for a little bit. And, you know, I had moments of suicidal thoughts and, you know, I've done a lot of personal growth over the last 10 years, but something about getting COVID, losing your sense of smell and taste, um, you know, being just stuck in the home 
and actually looking at things a lot differently than I have before, I was dealing with some things for a minute. I was able to get out of it a lot quicker than, you know, I would have 10 years ago. Yeah. Man, I really got, I really, really got a little taste of what it's like to experience that. And I've had that with, you know, postpartum depression with Mm -hmm. my second. So I, I just, my heart um, goes out to people who really are stuck in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you bring up such a good point too, is that we all have mental health. And for some reason, we've decided that the only people who need to take care of their mental health are people with mental illness. And the reality is we all have a mental health and all of our mental health need to be nourished continuously. And they will ebb and flow over time, just like it sounds like it did with you. And if we're not continuously taking care of it, the same way that we take care of our physical health, it's a lot easier to get to those places. And even if you are taking care of it, you can still get to those places. But having those uh, processes in place that you've that you've put to take care of your mental health and make it a priority the same way we would if we had something wrong with our body, like a broken arm or a broken leg. Right, right. What are you finding? Um, what are some tools that people can can implement to take care of that on a daily? So when it or if it arises, if something comes up for somebody, like what is some, what is something they could do? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah. there's so many things that I think we all have to find what really works for us. Something that I love is affirmations. I don't know if you do any affirmations and things like that. That can be really useful, you know, waking up and saying things like, I am enough. I have everything that I need. I am capable. I, you know, those types of things. Having affirmations, but also giving yourself time. It seems like in this day and age, it's like we're always go, 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 go. And it's become almost glamorized to spread yourself too thin. like. If you're not working hard enough or if you're not getting like we should lack in sleep and we should lack in all of these things to, you know, be on the grind and make it in life or in career or whatever that looks like for you. And in reality, a lot of the time we're much less successful when we are not taking care of ourselves throughout the process. And I, I mean, we've all experienced that. So yeah. giving yourself even one day a week or one hour a day of me time, whatever that looks like. I like to take a bath or, um, you know, put your essential oils in the bath. It feels like you can just detach. And even if I have a million things on my plate and I can schedule that time, that's Jamie time that I take care of my mental health, it, it doesn't get moved. It always happens. It seems like things go a lot better. So I think having scheduled self-care time, self-care is huge. And what that looks like for you could be various things. Um, maybe you like to write, maybe you like to read, go golfing. I know my sister loves to go golfing these days. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love it so much. I know, I know. Um, but whatever that looks like, it doesn't matter what it is as long as you're separating it for me time. And I, and I think especially with motherhood, I've seen it in my, I mean, I don't have children, but watching family members of you're a mom and, and, and in some ways taking that self-care seems selfish or problematic, but in reality, you can show up so much better as a mom if you're in a good mental state, you're not in those low states of not taking care of yourself. 
It is so true. I am telling you, like, it makes all the difference when I take me time. Yeah. I have to. I mean, I've got my kids the majority of the time, and then I'm working, and then I'm coming home and doing house stuff. Then, yeah, you know, you're running errands, and then you're being, you want to be social too. And so it's like, yeah. Sometimes when my kids leave, like on, you know, their dad weekends, I'm like, like that Friday, I like to clean my house. Okay. Which is not self care. It's not self care, by the way. It's not. I'm just giving you a little idea. But like, and then I'll just like get food and then I'll just do whatever like calls to me. I'm like, okay, I want to meditate. I want to take a bath. I want to go to Target and go walk around the Target. Or, you know, there's just these little things that help and journaling, like you said, affirmations. I think it's, I think it's a daily thing also that you get to do is have a ritual throughout the day, a morning, afternoon, um, you know, because again, I think it's important to have, have check-ins too. Yeah, absolutely. How am I doing? Yeah. How am I doing? How am I feeling? What do I need? Do I need to sit down? Do I need more water? What is it that I need? Because sometimes when you don't take care of yourself, and you're, you're going, going, going at the end of the week or a month, you hit a breaking point and you're having a meltdown and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. How did I allow myself to get like to this, you know, extreme, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then sometimes you can't get out of that when you fall to that lower hole at the end where you've been going, 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 doing all of these things that are good things. It's good to take care of your family. It's good to work. It's good to clean your house. And also it's critical that you're taking care of yourself so that you can do all of those things. So I think that scheduling that time is so critical, especially if you're in a good mental state right now. If you can get in that pattern, it's going to make it a lot easier to keep it up when you are feeling like I'm struggling with whether that be anxiety or I'm in a low state of depression or whatever it looks like. If you have that time set in place, it's going to be a lot easier. The other thing I was going to mention that my research has primarily focused on is social support. And it, of course, seems logical to reason that having a social network would help with your mental health. But the interesting thing is with mental illness is we often think that we do support our friends or family with mental illness. So we think, well, yeah, my my mom has depression and and I show up for her. But then a lot of the time when there's certain symptoms that are an act out of depression or anxiety, such as canceling plans or being on your cell phone a lot when you're in a public group or just different symptoms or coping mechanisms of mental illness, people aren't always as understanding in those moments to give that social support. Because we we hear it as like, oh, you have depression. I support you. I love you. I'll be here when you call and you're struggling. But then are we still showing up in those times where they're not explicitly saying I'm canceling my plans because I'm in a low funk of depression or I'm feeling really anxious. They're just canceling the plans. And we've all had a friend that cancels plans periodically. And I'm totally victim. Like I totally fall at fault of being upset or annoyed or angry instead of thinking, huh, I wonder what's going on for them and how can I support them at this time? Experienced that with some people before with friends and, but deep down I'm like, no, that doesn't sound right. Like, you know, and so it's, it's again, like asking how, how could we support 
you know, our friends and family that are doing things like that. Cause again, yeah. we can think, oh, they're cause they make up excuses as to why they can't come. Like you, you know, yeah. first, like what you're saying, Hey, I'm really struggling right now. And so it's, I guess it's just, how would you identify that? Like, how would you, I guess. Yeah. And it's almost an impossible question, right? Because you don't want to be invasive. You don't want to be rude. You don't want to make assumptions. And also you want to be there for people you care about. And the thing with social support is it's one of the biggest predictors of psychological development. So research has shown that if you have social support, it can buffer the development of, um, of like depression, anxiety. They've done it with all types of different psychological outcomes. And so it's important. And yet we still don't always know how to get it and how to grasp it. Right. So from the perspective of the person who isn't necessarily in that rut or has the friend who is canceling plans and things like that, I really think the best thing, and of course this is coming from somebody who loves communication, but it's just asking like, Hey, I noticed that you've been canceling your plans. I just wanted to check in and see if you're okay. Instead of jumping to the assumption of, Oh my gosh, like Micah, stop canceling our plans. Yeah. You never show up. Right? right. But if we allow some grace or some space to be like, Hey, I, notice that this isn't really in your character or I've noticed this has been happening continuously. What's going on? Like, where are you at? Um, or even say you have a friend who gets a mental illness, mental illness diagnosis and saying, what do you need? And maybe that person doesn't know what they need, but maybe you can even say, what don't you need? What's not helpful. Um, and I think we skip that step so often of just asking somebody what they need in times of struggle or in good times, just saying like, Michael, what do you need right now? Like what would be helpful from a friend or what are some things that I could take off your plate or, you know, just those, that open dialogue about it, which I also think will help with the stigma surrounding it. If we can have open conversations about, Hey, I'm counseling because I'm having anxiety or whatever that looks like. I'm going to feel more comfortable if I know that Micah's already said she wants to support me with this. So I'm going to be open with her and say, Hey, this is the real reason that this is going on because I trust you. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. You know, I didn't ever. <laughs> so I've been really big. I'm a big communicator as well, Jamie mm -hmm. and I. And so I've really, you know, we've, I've done podcasts with, with guys and we've talked about dating for instance, yeah. right? Yeah. So say, when you're dating somebody, you ask, what is it you need from me? Yeah. Right? But like, as you're saying this, I'm like, oh my God, like, hello, you do this with your friends that are canceling. You do this yeah. with, you know, and what do you not need? What do, yeah. like, I love the way you just said that because it, I mean, it's the silliest thing, right? Like, hello, why wouldn't you put it together? You're doing it when you date. Yeah. But I just didn't think about that because again, there's not, I don't have a ton of, of awareness around it. And this is why we're doing this, obviously. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right. It's so, which is so perfect. Um, so yeah, that is so well, and, smart. Yeah. Well, and friendships are relationships too. Like we only think of relationships as a romantic relationship. But I mean, I, I've seen your friend group. I've seen my own friend groups. It's like, these people matter to you. You have a relationship with these people. So why are we skipping that dialogue that we make so important in a romantic partnership or even in like a parent child relationship? Friendships need that too. Yeah. What's, 
what's interesting too, in terms of, so my thesis is looking at coping drinking. So drinking alcohol to cope with, with, um, any negative emotion or any, um, stress, whatever that looks like. And coping drinking motives is one of the biggest predictors of alcoholism. So that's kind of why I decided to look at that is I'm like, okay, so if people are drinking to cope, they're at a way higher likelihood of developing substance use issues down the line. So what's leading to the drinking to cope? Like what, what is taking us to that point? Because I had seen this happening in, in family relationships and friend relationships where I'm seeing people turn to alcohol and I'm wondering what's missing. Like, why do we feel like we have to turn to alcohol for our coping? And so I started to research this more and I collected some data and found that, again, social support is the main thing that will buffer us from drinking to cope because we'll have these people to connect with. And the other thing that that challenges is that alcoholism isn't necessarily a choice, which is what we sometimes frame it as in society and media in all of these places, when in reality, there's various things that are playing into our health choices. So if I need social support, and we also need social skills, that's another predictor, in order to refrain from drinking to cope, if I don't have those things, I'm at a higher likelihood of drinking to cope which then sets me up for later substance issues, which then also hurts your mental health, obviously. So grasping that social support ahead of time is so huge. And then showing up for your people when they are in crisis or they are in stress is so large for, you know, making it so we don't get to that point of turning to alcohol instead of talking to our friends or talking to our family. And then in turn, you know, the other negative outcomes that could come from it. So it's just so crazy how much social support impacts so many things. Like our people matter. It doesn't mean it has to be this huge group of people, but we need people. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you, I bet anybody who's listening to this, you can think of one to two or three people that you really trust, right? You can just tell anything to. And those are the type of people you want to share this information, obviously, with. And and if you know your friends are open with you, I think it's so good to like, because I think some people don't know what to ask or what to say. Yeah. And I I feel like so with some of my friends, you know, I check in. We check in either daily or every few days or some of it's weekly, monthly, whatever, depending on the friendship, right? And or we'll we'll get together once a month and you know, we're always in big groups. Yeah. You know, we always end up with maybe two or three of us talking because there's always big groups. But I feel like for me, it's like making more of an effort to just say, Hey, what's going on in your life? Like, is there anything you're dealing with that you need support on? Yeah. Yeah. What's going up for you? Because I think sometimes when you get in big groups, sometimes people can't go that deep because there's so many people around you know? Yeah. And so it's again, just checking in and just saying, Hey, you know, is there anything you're dealing with lately that you're struggling on that I yeah. can support you with? Yeah. And I love when you said, what does showing up look like for you? Like, how can I show up for you? I teach, uh, at Utah state, I teach interpersonal communication. So it's like this intro to communication. It's awesome class. And a lot of the students that I teach are, 
you know, freshmen, sophomores in college. And so this is like, they're starting to become adults. They're starting to figure out life, all of these things. And a lot of them are starting to date and maybe try and find their future with men or women or whatever that looks like. And um, I teach a week on love languages, which is exactly what you said of how can I support you? And the biggest thing that challenges a lot of their thoughts is you have to communicate to somebody in a way that they can understand, which goes the same with love. So if my love language is words of affirmation, but my partner or friend's um, love language is quality time, if I'm speaking to them in words of affirmation, it's not necessarily a form of communication that they can understand. And it's the same way with supporting. If I'm trying to support you in a way that works for me, such as bringing you gifts or bringing you a card or bringing you candy. And you're like, no, actually what supporting looks like for me is just sitting with me, being with me, spending quality time. So finding out what way the other person can really understand is so vital. And the only way we can figure that out is by asking, like you said, what is showing up look like for you? What does it look like for me to support you? What do you need? What don't you need? So that you be sure that you're, communicating your love and support in a way that they can fully understand. Yeah. And I sometimes feel like people that are in these, these struggling times, they don't even know what they need. Yeah. They're, they feel alone. Yeah. They feel, I'm not going to open up to anybody. I look crazy. I don't want to look bad. I'm just going to keep it in. Yeah. Cause I don't even know if a friend says, Hey, what do you need from me? Some, sometimes you're like, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know what that looks like for me. And I think sometimes it's just, it's again, just opening up to say, I'm struggling with this. I don't even know what I need. Yeah. But But I need something. I need something. Yeah. And and maybe a friend could try different avenues where showing up and being there or sending them cookies or just checking in and just dabbling with it a little bit. Yeah. Again, doing something. Yeah. Do it just something. Yeah. Again, sometimes you just don't know. Yeah. And I think too, with like you and I, I mean, I, I deal with mental illness. I have family members who deal with mental illness and a part of my move, it's like, if I want people to feel comfortable speaking up to me about their struggles with their mental health, then I've got to be willing to speak up about my struggles with my mental health. And the only way that we can break that stigma of talking about it and breaking the crazy or the, you know, feeling radical or whatever that is, is by also being brave and speaking up. And it is, it is a brave thing to do to show parts of yourself. It's a vulnerable thing to do. And so if I want people to be willing to open up to me, I also have to be willing to open up and show that, Hey, it's okay. It's okay for us to talk about these things. And the more that I'm talking about it to people, the more hopefully they would be willing to talk about it, even if it's not to me, but to somebody that they trust. Exactly. Because, you know, it's almost like you're giving them permission. Yeah. When we step into our authenticity and we're super vulnerable people, I like you're, I'm just, you know, reiterating. Yeah. 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 It allows them to really, uh, you know, gives them that permission. Like, Oh wow. This person right here is struggling. I've even had like my cousin made a comment to me one time and she's like, you just seem like you have your shit together all the time. And I go, (laughs) do you want to know what I've been dealing with? And she's like, you know what? Thank you for sharing that. 
because what you portray on social media, like just, it just looks like everything's so perfect and you're kicking ass. And I go, I am, I'm creating this amazing life, but I still have my struggles. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. And I think that's another part of the, the stereotype and stigma of mental health. I remember when I was first diagnosed with depression and anxiety, I was 14, I believe. So going into high school and I remember I was really active in high school. I was student body president. I was involved. I played lacrosse. I did a lot of things. And I remember opening up to a good friend of mine and being like, I really struggle with depression. And I've been, you know, trying to find my groove and trying to find what therapist works for me, what medication works for me, all of these things. And she was like, you can't have depression. You're student body president. And I think that was when my click happened of we've decided what people with mental illness look like. Like we've decided that you can't be kicking ass, like you said, and creating this beautiful life and have a mental illness. And that's just not reality. Reality is that anyone can struggle with their mental health. Anyone. There's no cookie cutter person that it looks like we're all going to be impacted at one time or another. And at that time, I mean, I was really young So for someone to say that to me, I then was like, well, maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I don't have a mental illness. And maybe, you know, I started questioning myself when in reality, what I needed to do was say, no, yeah, I am a student body president. I am active in school. I do have a good group of friends and I have a mental illness and they both can exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much power in that too. And, and also a way of, um, you know, connecting. Yeah. Really can connect on another level when you step into that vulnerability. Yeah. Share with people because again, the world I feel sometimes is so sometimes some people, I think a lot of, a lot more are um, stepping into being more um, vulnerable and authentic. Um, You know, especially since the pandemic, I think there's a lot of people who have been tapping into that, which has been really cool to see. Yeah. Um, but it's for me, it's like when I hear someone be super vulnerable with me, I'm like, wow, we just totally connected there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's so much research on vulnerability. I don't know how much you follow Brandy Brown, but I, love her. I know she's the best. She's yes. like a huge, anyway, a lot of people in my field also research a lot of the same things as her. And vulnerability facilitates connection. That's like the direct gift that comes from vulnerability. So if I'm wanting to connect with you, allowing parts of me to be seen, that's what vulnerability is, is allowing my thoughts, views, emotions, whatever to be seen. I'm going to connect with you. You're going to see a part of me that maybe not everyone sees, or maybe a part that resonates with you too, or whatever that is. But we have to be willing to share those parts of us. So that others have that opportunity to connect with us or have that opportunity to see, really, you you deal with that same thing that I do. I would have never known. The only way we know is if we choose to show parts of ourselves and to to disclose parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you imagine what like the world would look like if everyone could step into that? Oh, beautiful. It would be, there would be a lot of healing. Yeah. Right. Because again, the secret keeps you captive. Yeah. And 
you know? And so once it's out, when you're able to express, you know, I have this or this, then it's like, Oh, I can breathe, you know? Yeah. So, man. And that's why I'm so committed to doing these podcasts and showing up that way with my friends and people that I interact with, because I want them to see, okay, look at this. This is what it looks like to actually be real with people. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like with what you said of if the world was like this, well, it may not be yet, but we have to start somewhere. And if we believe like, well, it's too big of a problem. There's no way that just I could fix it. Well, that's not going to do anything rather than if I were the one to be asking some open questions. Like if somebody says something to me that I'm like, huh, not sure what I think about that. I don't really know how to make sense of what you just said. If instead of being judgmental or critical and jumping to assumptions, I was like, well, what's that about for you? Like, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? And trying to understand the why of people. Oh my goodness. People are so beautiful when you get to know them up close. And it's so much easier to humanize people if we give them space to tell what things are about for them. You can have a completely different view from me. And if I gave you the space to say, well, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Why do you do that? And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't necessarily resonate with your outcome, but I can see how you got to that process. And that makes sense to me. Suddenly we've connected, you know, and and this is aside from mental health a little bit, but just with being open to each other. Mm -hmm. Well, it's getting people's world, you know, it's really getting them, but it takes something for a human being to be in a conversation with somebody and ask those questions and really get in their world. Um, One, there's a huge difference between hearing somebody and listening to understand. Like I could hear you this whole time. I could, your noises are going to hit my ear for sure. But am I really listening? Am I really trying to understand who you are and what matters to you and and what things you're trying to connect with me? Because it takes a lot more work to listen than it does to hear. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing, though. You like I said, you can just you can tell when people aren't with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, And that's the thing is also if you can stay aligned within as an individual when people are talking to you, like for me, when people are talking to me, I want them to feel seen and heard. Right. Right. In a way where there's transformation that's caused. Um, because again, I'm up to make a difference for people in all my interactions. Like I, I, I don't want to be the one that's like, they're talking and I'm, they're like, she's not, she's you're somewhere out. else. Yeah. Because I want to be that person. So then people will feel safe with me too, you know, yeah. and they'll open up and share things because of my listening of them, I know things can shift fast. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that ties it back so well to this idea of our mental health is if people know that you listen to me and, and you want to see me and I feel seen and heard around you, you're going to be the person that I think of in a time of need because I'm going to remember how I felt in previous conversations with you or previous interactions. And so that work that you're putting in now, and I'm sure people already do open up to you, but I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do to support our loved ones in their mental health journey, mental illness, whatever it may be, is showing up even when things are good. 
and listening constantly because those are the people I'm going to remember to go to. And if I am in crisis mode and meeting somebody, I'll remember you instead of feeling like I have no one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, from our interactions, I really got that from you. Like you're just, you're very present. You ask questions. You really want to get my world. I mean, you know, I know we were at like little family things, but (laughs) all the interactions I've had with you, they've been that. And you've showed up as that. I just wanted you to acknowledge you for that because Again, I think it, it really takes something in somebody to be that. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot to me. But we yeah. can all be it, you know, we can all do it if we're willing to do it. Because it's not it's not the easy way. The easy way is just hearing people and just being there. But really showing up for people, really attending, really listening, trying to see somebody's world, it is going to take work. And also it could it could change many things, right? If social support is helping our psychological development, then these are the interactions that matter that are going to help us from developing these, these various mental illnesses or alcohol issues. Yes. What have you found with, um, anxiety and PTSD? Like what are some, you know, fascinating studies that you have found around those? Yeah. Great question. So a lot of the work that I've done, particularly with anxiety. So I've looked at FOMO, which is actually a research topic. So if you're really? missing out, yes. Uh-huh. It's an, I, I was shocked too. So as a grad student, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to re- research FOMO. Like that feels like my world, right? Cause we do, we live in a world of FOMO. Fear of missing out is huge right now with technology, social media, all of the things. Um, so I did a study with looking at, um, like ha- the way that we take conflict personally and, how that will then turn into our FOMO, which will then increase our anxiety. So if I take conflict very personally, like if you're like, hey, Jamie, you didn't pick up your clothes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're attacking me and I'm taking it personal. If I'm somebody who genuinely takes conflict personally, I'm more likely to have fear of missing out when you're with your friends and I'm not invited or whatever that looks like. And then my anxiety is going to increase over time. So it also goes into this world of, wow, it's so important to be mindful. Like, I don't know how much work you've done in mindfulness, but mindfulness is so critical to assure that we're not falling into the FOMO trap. Like if I'm comfortable with me and who I am and where I am and my people, and I'm mindful and I'm in a good spot, I'm probably not going to experience as much FOMO which then will help my mental health overall because I'm not going to fall into that um, development of anxiety. Mm, that. Yeah. Interesting, right? That is so interesting. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. I know. I know. I was shocked. So it's totally a communication thing, but FOMO is a real research topic. It's super heavily researched in communication studies, also psychology, and people are looking at it from different outlets of social media, but also face-to-face interactions as well. So being mindful is a huge way to help us from developing these poor mental health habits. Mm, So super interesting. Um, Also your ability to be flexible. So they, they say cognitive flexibility, but essentially it's just this idea of, can I roll with the punches? Like as things change, can, can I adjust with them? And if I can, 
then my mental health is is going to increase. If I'm able to pivot, right? You've you've talked about a lot of your life situations and you've made beautiful things out of your life situation, which totally increases your mental health. But if instead something happens, maybe my partner leaves me or maybe I'm a child and my parents get divorced and I just can't pivot, then it's going to deteriorate my mental health over time. And wow, talk about a pandemic. That's kind of something we don't see every day, right? No, no. And I think that we're all realizing that. Like this thing that we have no control over comes out of nowhere. We don't know anything about it. I mean, now we do, but I'm thinking beginning times. It's March of last year and we're like, what, COVID? Like what's happening? This is scary. Things are closing. I don't know what to expect. Am I going to die? Are my loved ones going to die? Like I'm laughing, but it is scary. No, yes. It's <laughs> and then I think that that's what like you were talking about at the beginning is, and this isn't something that I've necessarily looked at, but based on past research, it makes sense that if I can't adjust with this thing that's completely out of my control, it's going to hurt my mental health, which means that worldwide, we're all experiencing this thing we didn't anticipate there's probably a lot of us that our mental health is hurting. And a lot of our things that we need to help our mental health, like social support, are being taken away. Like You can Zoom with people, may not be the same interaction. My good friend's uh, brother, it was this horrible time. He'd been sober for, I don't know, maybe five to eight years. I can't remember for sure from alcohol and drugs. And the reason, the thing that really helped him was this gym that he became a part of. And that kind of became his family. It was a boxing gym and COVID COVID hits and that social support is taken. And how do I cope with not having my social support? Well, I relapsed and unfortunately he lost his life from that. And so we'd, we have to have social support in place for when these things happen, when these things, even if we don't feel like we can be flexible, we have to have our people to lean on and we have to be there for people to lean on as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Hmm. I just so brought, <laughs> you know, it, it is, it's so much because it, it brought up um, just a lot of really special people in my life. Yeah. That have been dealing with a lot of things. Um, and sometimes I'm like, I'm here. Yeah. I, how can I support you? You know, I've just everything yeah. talked about and they're still struggling in it. And it really just breaks my heart, you know, because sometimes people are just stuck and this pandemic really has done a number. Yeah. On people. Yeah. And loneliness. Like I didn't think I really was a, person who got lonely until the pandemic hit. And I'm like, wow, I'm feeling really alone. And like verbalizing that out loud and figuring out what that emotion was, was like loneliness Mm -hmm. gave me so much power. I think that's another thing with being vulnerable is giving words to the emotions that you're experiencing. I show my students an emotion wheel. I don't know if you've ever looked at any of those, but it shows your core emotions but then it kind of fans out to various emotions, which can be attached to that. And if we name our emotions something that they're not, we can't manage or cope with them. So if I called loneliness sadness, let's say, 
I'm going to think, okay, how I usually cope with sadness is this. Well, that didn't work. What's wrong with me? Rather than if I were like, okay, let's look at this wheel of emotions. What am I actually feeling? Like what is happening for me inside? Oh, I'm feeling loneliness. What is loneliness? Like, what does that look like? How do I cope with this? What can I do with it? And suddenly I had all this freedom because I identified what the emotion actually was that I was experiencing. Mm. So there's so much power in our emotions. Yeah. So can you expand more on that as far as like once you identified loneliness and you were able to unravel that? Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that I would say if you're feeling something, maybe you don't know exactly what it is, is looking at a will. You can Google emotion wheel and it will show you a bunch of different words like abandoned, um, frustrated, bored, like so many different emotions that you could be experiencing. So I identify, okay, I think this is loneliness. And then my researcher head is like, okay, what is loneliness? And then I start Googling, looking up loneliness. What does that look like? And loneliness is normal. Wow, I'm not crazy for feeling lonely. A lot of people feel lonely. And then I love to just understand what loneliness is. So I'm watching TED Talks about loneliness. I'm uh, reading books. Brené Brown has a really good book that brings in loneliness. I can't remember which one it is. But she has so many good books. So read any of her books if you're listening. Yeah, Yeah. she's so good. But just identifying what is this emotion and giving it that word. And when my partner asks, hey, how are you feeling? And saying, I'm feeling lonely. Not, I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. But it's so freeing to just use the words of what you're feeling. And I felt so free to know, okay, this is loneliness. And now I can work with it. I felt paralyzed to not know what I was feeling. So I'm like, I don't know how to get out of this tenseness in my chest and this pit in my stomach because I don't know what it is. Mm. But as I started going through that and identifying, okay, this is loneliness and loneliness is hard and scary and it's not fun. And even if everyone else is dealing with it at the same time as you, it's still hard. And I think that with the pandemic, that was something that happened massively is we're like, well, everyone's dealing with it. Like everyone's dealing with not seeing their family. Everyone's dealing with not seeing their friends. And it's still hard. It doesn't matter if everyone's dealing with it. It's still hard. Yeah. So yeah, you can't discredit your feelings because everybody else is feeling it. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of where I started is looking at the emotions and then exploring some of them. Does that fit? Does that not fit? And then once you know what it is, how do I cope with that? I've never really experienced loneliness. What do I do with that? And then exploring other resources surrounding whatever that emotion is. But then not being afraid to take responsibility for that. Like, rather than saying, you know, the pandemic made me feel lonely. I say, I feel lonely. Like, I feel loneliness. This is something I'm feeling right now. And there's so much power in, in owning your emotions and being responsible for whatever that emotion is. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like stating, yeah, I'm lonely and not having to feel like you need to give people reasons. No. Yeah, absolutely. People have to explain themselves. It's like, no, I'm lonely right now. That's it. Yeah. And that's, that's okay. Yeah. Giving yourself permission to feel whatever you feel. My really great friend just recently lost her dad. And 
I lost my dad just a few years ago. And so we've kind of bonded over this shared experience. And she was feeling so crappy because she's like, I don't, I'm not crying. I feel like I should be crying right now. And I'm actually feeling really angry. And I feel guilty for feeling angry. And I think that that's such a horrible trap to get stuck in of thinking you have to feel a certain way, but instead giving yourself freedom to feel whatever you feel. Like I can feel angry that my dad passed away or I can feel mad that my husband didn't do the dishes. You may think it's petty or whatever, but it's okay if it's what you feel. Just own it. Just say, I feel this and give yourself permission to feel whatever you feel without contingencies without condition like you can feel what you need to feel Mm -hmm. exactly and I think too once you state it yeah your mind from playing games as far as okay I'm really depressed right now that means something is wrong with me I'm this and we start going down this rabbit hole of the story behind that little feeling of emotion that we're feeling it it does that's what happens our brains won't stop yeah (laughs) Yeah. yeah, we just see rule. Yeah. And there's tons of research to support that if we try to suppress our emotions, they just get bigger. There's this poem that I love. I can't think of who it's by, but it's called The Guest House. And it essentially talks about how each emotion is like a guest coming to stay at your house. And you greet the guests, you let them into your home, you let them stay as long as they need. And then when they're ready to go, they'll leave. And that's really how our emotions are. If we allow them to just come in, they will leave when they're ready to leave. If we let them in, if we never let them in. They're going to be banging on the door trying to get in. And then it's just going to boil over. And then suddenly it's way bigger than if I just allowed myself to feel whatever emotion came whenever it came. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do this with my kids. I actually yeah. saw one of my friends. She had like this, this will, I think she had the same will, this yeah, on her wall. And she did a story on it like a month ago. And I was like, holy shit, I want to do that with my kids because, you know, I've been really talking to my oldest, she's eight and just, you know, what are you feeling right now? Well, I'm sad. Okay. Let's talk more about you feeling sad and dissect it and walk through it. Mm-hmm. And that's been really powerful. But I think that if I had a will on the wall too, and I think they would even help me. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. You know, so yeah. not that I'm, you know, not able to identify it, but I think it would just bring more of an awareness to just check in. Yeah. More frequently, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's so many emotions that we don't expanding our emotional vocabulary is so helpful to understanding ourselves. If we don't, if we're not aware of all of the words, I'm like painting a wheel as if it's on my, I know. Not on my wall, but now I wish it was. <laughs> um, but if I can see all of these words, I'm expanding my emotional vocabulary, which gives me a lot of power over the emotions of handling them and, and dealing with them. And I love what you said about your daughter. Like, let's explore sadness more. What does that feel like? Where do you feel it in your body? Like, does your stomach hurt? Does your, do your hands hurt? Are you feeling hot? Are you feeling cold? Like a lot of our physiological elements, such as, you know, our tightened chest or feeling sweaty or feeling a red face. A lot of those are good indicators to what emotion you're actually experiencing. Mm. And a lot of times people think it's 
it's the physical element, right? That's the yeah. problem. It's the emotional that flares up all the, a lot of the physical, I believe. Oh, it is. No, that's, that's yeah. supported by research. You can say that, Micah. It's true. It that is Thank true. You. Yeah. I say it to people and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's real. We have phys- physiological side effects of our emotions or our mental state. Like our body responds. They've done body scans of people who are experiencing different emotions and it will show different temperatures at different parts of their body or different tension like in their head or their chest or their feet or all of these things. And if you look at those body scans, you're like, oh, yeah, I do feel that heaviness or I do feel that uh, heat or whatever it is. And it's totally true. And if we can explore that, I think with your children is such a good place to start because we weren't necessarily the generation of, you know, rub some dirt on it as much as like our grandparents, but still somewhat. And so we have a lot to teach our future generations and our kids of, no, you can say you're sad. And and what does that feel like? What does it look like? Tell me what your body feels like so that they can start to identify it on their own too. And then suddenly we have this new generation who have emotional and mental resilience and are comfortable with speaking up in their struggle and know that it's not weak to say I'm hurting or this is what's happening for me. And rather it's brave and strong to ask for help or to let parts of you be seen. Yeah. You know, I, so when I went through my separation, Blake, my, my oldest was, this was like three years ago, right? So what was she five, six? Yeah. Um, I remember I had all my kids, 10 week old, Tinley was, you know, two, Blake was six. And I was in a really bad space because a lot of things happened. And I remember I'm like, I need to go in my room. I need to just go cry because I want my kids to see me crying in my mind. Yeah. Went up, I thought I locked the door and I am having just a meltdown. Yeah. Bawling, bawling. So Blakely comes in, Tinley comes in. And I just, I sat there and I'm like, you know what? She gets to see you sad. Yeah. And she's, mom, what's wrong? And yeah. I go, Honey, I'm just sad. She says, well, what are you sad about? I go, I'm just sad about me and dad. She goes, well, why are you sad about you and dad? And I can't even remember what else I said. I gave her enough, but not, you know. Right. There has to be boundaries. Yeah. At this point to know everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she says, oh, okay. And I go, well, honey, I go some, you know, it's, it's good to be sad. Some, it's okay to be sad sometimes. Yeah. She goes, oh, okay. I go, yeah. And I've always taught my kids that, but you can teach and say, 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 but if you don't do your kids, that does nothing. Yeah. They do what you do, not what you say. Yeah. And so ever since then, I've been so tapped into how I'm feeling and I'll share it with my kids. Yeah. I'm super open. And so going back to what you were saying with asking your kids, you know, what are you feeling? And and I, being able to identify what, what, what does it feel like? Does your tummy, whatever, you know, kind of go through all that. Also do it, you know, speak it to your kids. Like this is yeah. what I'm feeling today. Yeah. Tummy is feeling that like this or my joints are hurting or my neck yeah. or whatever. Because again, just repeating myself, they do what you do, not what you say. 
So if we can master it here, then our kids are going to watch then yeah. they're going to start mastering it. Because if we just say, Oh, do this will. And we're not even familiar with any. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be so loud. They're going to be like, okay, what's happening? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. And Micah, it's not even just kids. It's like you're whoever you're surrounding yourself with pays attention to the things you do. And that can be inspiring to adults as well. And if I see the way that you navigate your emotions and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll try that or maybe I'll explore that more. I remember sitting in class one time. My, my first semester of grad school was just so tough for me. And I really struggled mentally. I really struggled with perfectionism and imposter syndrome, all the things like that. And I remember sitting in a seminar once and I was so embarrassed because I started to get a little bit teary eyed because I'm like, I do not understand what we're talking about. <laughs> like, I just read all of these readings for the week. I'm sitting in here. Everyone's talking about it like they understand. And I have no idea what the hell is going on. Yeah. So I'm just like feeling just horrible. And I started to tear up a little bit. And then um, we had a break in between and I'm talking to this professor who I just love, she's a badass, just this amazing woman. And I'm like, I'm really strong, but I cry. And she was like, you're really strong and you cry. And it's so crazy how that word of and versus but just shifted my perspective of like, no, I can be strong and cry. I can be sad and be strong. I can be sad and be happy. I can be both of these things. They don't have to be things that can't exist together. And if we can break that idea to our kids and to our friends of like, I can cry in front of you. It's, it's okay for me to cry. It's healthy for me to cry. It's normal to cry. Then suddenly we're not creating this generation that feels like I have to hide my emotions because they're not valid. Even if we don't say that, but thinking that we need to hide them invalidates them. Um, or it shows weakness, or I shouldn't be feeling this way. Our, our next generation isn't going to feel that way if we're the ones who are showing, no, it's okay. Like, I got emotional in school. Maybe you thought you can't do that. It's okay to do that sometimes. And we all have different feelings, and it's healthy to feel that. And then I remember one of my, one of my classmates was like, I was so glad to see you just being raw because I didn't understand anything either, (laughs) which was like kind of a funny, a funny thing. But then she's like, it just felt really cool to watch you show up. And then she felt like she could show up in the future and be like, I'm not getting this. This isn't clicking for me. And then we're not in that rut. You know what I mean? Exactly. See, and that's again, by being vulnerable, it gives people permission to step into that too. Yeah. Which is exactly what we need to help our mental health and our emotional development. Yeah. Yeah. And like for me, like with crying, mine, I pick that up at a really young age, like as far as being weak, right? Because here's my mom. She had breast cancer since I was six years old. She had it for 19 years. She was always in, you know, remission every six years. And it was just like, she never showed that she was sick or she was tired. I mean, sometimes she showed she was tired, but she was always so strong. She had successful businesses. She's on the board of cosmetology. She's got, she's kicking ass, but yet you're dying inside. But I would have never known. So in that moment of being so young, I told myself that 
who are you to even cry to show yeah. emotion? Because here's your mom. She's dying. Yeah. So don't you dare show emotions because if you do, you're weak. Yeah. So in my 20s, it was about, was I, maybe it was probably actually in my 30s. I was seeing a life coach and I was so scared to cry to him. And he says, Micah, it takes so much courage to cry. Yeah. I no, I feel like I'm weak and I don't want to look weak. And he's like, no. Yeah. Somebody that cries has courage. And I'm yeah. like, you're right. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah. And you change the narrative. You change the narrative of crying equals weakness rather to crying is brave and crying is showing parts of you. And even if it's not crying and it's just sharing parts of you or choosing to see a therapist or whatever you need to take care of yourself, it's all brave. Like showing up to share what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, what you're going through is brave and courageous. It is. Yeah. It, but gosh, it takes something to get into that space, right? Cause it's giving yeah. a lot, a lot of stories up a lot of whatever the story is, whether that's, what are people going to think? What are the stories I'm telling about myself? If I, you know, ask for help or whatever, again, it's giving it all up. Yeah. It's super easy, but we make it hard. Well, and the thing is, it's like you're giving up things that you've known for so long. Like even when I'm teaching my students about communication skills, they're like, I suck at this. Like I tried to do this with my mom or my roommate or my sibling, and I just couldn't do it. And, you know, they're in their 20s, which isn't that old. But still, it's like for 20 years, you've been communicating the same way or you've been doing things the same way. So to change that is going to be hard. We've been conditioned to believe that sharing parts of our story is weak or scary or dangerous. So to change that is going to be hard or to open up in general is going to be hard to relieve, relive situations is going to be hard. But the more that we change that way that we were conditioned, then we can change other people's minds too. And it can be, you know, this domino effect. Mm, yes. And there's a lot of power in that. So much power. I mean, think of what you're doing each week that you're recording with people, sharing people's stories. That's starting domino effects. Yeah, it is. It's so powerful. Mm. How did, so how did, like, what made you want to get in this and like do all the studies? Because I know you said you struggled yourself with, you know, mental health and anxiety. Like what, yeah, what drove you to do this? I'm curious. Yeah, great question. So yeah, I, I started to become familiar with mental health and mental illness a little bit through my own journey in high school. Even still, I don't know that I really understood until college but I was always fascinated with this idea of mental health. And ever since that person was like, you can't, you're, you're still body president. You're involved. You can't have depression. I was like, I need to challenge that. I need to challenge that stereotype of what someone with a mental illness looks like. And I want to speak up and be real and be honest. And in my undergrad, I took a um, family communication class. And there was a whole week talking about mental health within your family. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like me and all my siblings and my mom, we all got mental issues. I'm like, we all have mental health issues. And hopefully they'd be OK with me saying that. Um, but I, think, I know we all do. We really all do. Yeah. So and that was such a big click for me. And I'm like, OK, wait. So if he's teaching me about this, that means that there's people who are researching this. 
So I met with my professor after and was like, hey, like, I need to know more about this. He's like, yeah, so I research mental health. Do you want to do some research with me? I'm like, yes. And this is my junior year of college. And I started getting involved with some studies that he did on, uh, he does a lot with like families and mental health. So he was looking, the project that I did with him was on destructive parent-child conflict and how that will um, lead to anxiety. Super interesting, which I would be a whole other podcast about parenting. But um, so I did that project with him and I'm like, this is so cool. I need to do more of this. So I had decided to apply for grad school. And shortly after that, my dad passed away after I had made the decision that I was going to apply to grad school. And that rocked my world. Like there was a lot that I went through as a kid, but I don't think anything really prepares you for loss. And also doing it. I mean, me and my siblings were all in our twenties and we're having to plan our dad's funeral. Who does that? You know what I mean? You don't expect to do that. Like this should not be this way. And it, it put me in this rut. And then I was empowered of, okay, I have to do something that helps that from happening to the next family. My dad struggled with substance use and I wanted to understand. I'm like, why does alcoholism happen? Why is this happening? Because I watched my dad struggle with it. And my dad was a really high functioning alcoholic. He really was. And he, he showed up to your sporting events. He held a really successful job. He did all of these things. But yet again, because he did all of those things, it's like, oh, no, then you can't be an alcoholic. It was the same thing I was experiencing, but with alcoholism. Like, oh, you, you're not an alcoholic because you have a job, you show up for your kids, you do all of these things. And then he also didn't think it was a problem as well because, well, I don't fit the stereotype of what an alcoholic looks like. And so that's when my research started to shift a little bit towards the substance use, which is obviously really tied to mental health. And I wanted to understand alcoholism more and how we get to that place. And then also future routes, which I'm just answering one piece of my bigger question. But I want to understand more of like, where is this stereotype coming from and how can we challenge it? And I'm so passionate about giving people space to, to talk about their experiences, to talk about their stories, to be open to that mental health, substance use, alcoholism is so much more complex than we give it credit for. And I want to challenge the stereotype and stigma of it being a choice because I'm finding in research that there's a lot of things that we need in, that we need in order to make health choices. And if we don't have those things, we can't effectively make health choices, which means that while we can see choosing alcohol or turning to alcohol to cope as a choice, we didn't have the things necessary in place before to make it so we could make that appropriate choice. So long story short, I just want to be the one to challenge those stereotypes. I want to be the one to speak up about hey, you can be an alcoholic, you can struggle with substance use, you can have depression, you can have PTSD, you can have anxiety, you can have bipolar, you can have anything. And also you can be all of these other things. 
it's not your only identity. It's a part of you and anyone can be impacted by it. And I want to show and make a change for what the next generation sees within those illnesses and struggles. And I want to change the way that we talk about it, the way that we manage it, the way that we understand it. Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done. (laughs) There is a lot of work to be done. Like, Ooh, okay. I want to like expand a little bit more on that and what you have found with substance use. Yeah. Yeah. So the biggest, so my thesis is primarily around just coping drinking in the future. I'd like to look at, so there's different motivations for drinking. There's coping, which is obviously drinking to cope. There's conformity, which is like to fit in. So drinking to fit in a group, um, social. So to enhance social situations and then, um, Oh my goodness. Now I'm brain farting conformity, coping, social and enhancement. So to enhance a good mood or enhance whatever you're experiencing. And I want to understand, you know, more of that. I want to understand, do these other areas also lead to substance use issues? Is it really only drinking to cope? Um, And then my primary focus has been with the social support of how can social support reduce that likelihood? And what I found is it substantially reduces the likelihood of coping drinking motives developing, like drinking to cope. If I have social support that I can rely on when I'm experiencing negative emotion or stress or whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. So important for us to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Because how often do we hear in media or there's two things that I'm like, wow, we make this too casual. I had a long day. I need a drink. You hear that all the time in movies. You probably have said it. I've probably said it. We've all probably said it, right? I've had a long day. I need a drink. Well, by saying that, we're also emphasizing we should drink when we have a long day, which is drinking to cope, essentially. And then if we keep that pattern in other things, wow, I'm really struggling because I'm getting separated from my husband. I'm going to drink to manage this. And then suddenly that's your your thing that you go to. Um, So that's casually thrown around as though it's a normal thing to just drink when, when something's happening that we are uncomfortable with or whatever, but yet it has so many implications. So why are we normalizing it so much? I mean, I'm, I do it too. I'm not saying that I'm free of, of doing that, but I am saying we have to be careful what things we say and normalize. Mm-hmm. The other area within social support is like, how often do we hear, well, they're never going to change. You need to just cut them out of your life. If someone's struggling with substance use all the time. And of course you need to take care of your own health and you need to take care of yourself and you need to be in a safe situation. And also clearly what they need is social support. So that cutoff maybe isn't working. And if we could understand alcoholism or substance use better and understand, you know, how does that choice actually happen? What are you actually experiencing? Like, Tell me more about what it feels like to need a drug or to need alcohol. What does that feel like for you? Can you explain that to me so I can try and understand? And then again, it's like everything else we've, we've said, I'm being able to see a part of them and, and hopefully understand them more. And while I don't necessarily have to keep myself in unhealthy situations, 
I can still find a way to support that person or at least get them the support that they need instead of cutting them off of all the support that they have, which is only going to magnify the likelihood of them dipping deeper into their substance use. Mm, Yeah. But it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard to, to deal with somebody or to live with somebody who is struggling with substance. It is hard. And there can be unhealthy situations. So we have to find this balance of taking care of ourselves and also supporting the other person. But I think so quickly we're to that let's cut them off because we don't always understand what's happening. Yeah, it's so true. Well, because even if you go to like um, AA or al yeah, I, I went when I was younger for family, you know, addictions very high in my family. And, yeah. and it's, it's, um, that they say that, right? Like cut them yeah. off. Yeah. Cut them off. Yeah. Cut them and off. I do think that like, I didn't learn about Al-Anon until maybe two years ago, which if anyone listening doesn't know what it is, it's, it's more for the family members of people who have a substance issue or are alcoholics. And it's the same setup as AA, right? Because you said you went. It's like the same setup, but it's for the family members. Yeah. Um, and it can be really great. And also, that's not what the research is saying is helpful. You do need to protect yourself and be healthy and, and be in a safe situation. But cutting off is not always going to be the thing that helps them. Because I think we sometimes think if I just cut them off, they'll realize that they need to make a change. And I don't think that that's actually what's true. They need that support in order to make a change. Ultimately, they're going to have to make the decision to make a change or to seek help. But if they have that support system that's a consistent and and seeking to help them, seeking to understand, they may feel safe enough to say, hey, I need help. Can you go with me to get help? Yeah. Mm. Wow. It's, oh my gosh. Mm. (laughs) This is so, you know, it's just so interesting because it's like you hear all these things here, but then you're, you know, as you're researching and doing all these studies, but it just kind of goes back to this pandemic, disconnect everybody, just get away from everybody, stay at home, at home, don't interact, six feet apart. Why do you think the suicide rates are up so high? Yeah. The same thing with people, you know what I mean? At Correlate, it's all... It's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Just, dang. Yeah. It's not coincidence at all. We, we act in patterns. We do things in patterns and we have followed suit for so long. It makes sense that these things are happening. And also what are we going to do about it? Like, what are we going to do to make sure that we have these things in place before we get to that low state? Yeah. Yeah. And for me, like, I feel it's, it's again, getting like aligned within whether that's meditation, affirmations, writing down a list of what brings you joy. Um, you know, whatever that is and listening to good content, surrounding yourself with friends and family that when you leave, you feel uplifted and not depleted. Yes. Um, You know, and it's just being really present to that checking in often daily. I think it just, it starts with that little thing, you know, and, and, and staying aligned there because when shit hits the fan, because guess what? We all have stuff that happens. Yeah. It will hit the fan. (laughs) It will. 
Exactly. And I think, you know, that's where with last year, when it hit me hard, I was, I was able to deal with it a lot quicker. Like I mentioned, than I would have 10 years ago because I've been doing the work I'm, I'm in the court daily. And, and so again, it's those little things, um, you know, to, to support yourself. And here's the deal. It's like, I feel like we're so outward focused. We don't focus enough here. Yeah. We should be the number. I should be the number one priority. Yeah. Every single day. Show up for Micah every single day. Show up for Jamie every single day. You know, all you listeners, it's like, we've got to do that for ourselves. Because mm-hmm. no one's going to do it for you. No. Nobody's going to do and it And we us. can have good groups. It's important for us to have our good group of people that, that build us up, like you said, instead of depleting us. And we have to have ourselves. And you spend the most time with yourself. So it would probably be good if you like yourself. Exactly. So if you don't like yourself right now, or you don't feel comfortable with your relationship with yourself, you've got to put in the work to like yourself and to see the beauty that you are and the things that you have to offer and love yourself and talk kindly to yourself. The way that we talk to ourselves is so, so, so critical for our mental health, mm-hmm. for our self-esteem and our self-concept. The way we listen to ourselves when we talk about ourselves, but setting that time for you and showing up for you is so important. Well, and yeah. doing what's best for you. Yeah. And you know, what we, I was thinking about this, um, I don't even, it was probably years ago I actually had this thought. And And it's like, if I told my children all the thoughts I'm having about myself, Mm. I would be, I would never Mm -mm. want it back in the day. I would never want to share those horrible things that I was thinking to my kids. Are you kidding me? Like, so it's like, if you can't share it with your children and, you know, leave them uplifted and you, you know, giving them tools, because that's what we're doing every day is giving them tools, teaching them how to be in the world by who we're being. Oh my God. Could you imagine like, (laughs) yeah, it's just checking in and making sure like you're you're saying, be kind, like kind, speak kind to yourself. Yeah. To it. Yeah. Like, mm. I love that you've been mentioning your kids because that's who's listening to you. That's who's paying attention to you. And I I've noticed it so much with, I have a niece who's the best and I love her dearly. And I, I've just been paying attention to the things that I say around her and what she's picking up on, especially as a woman. And how do I talk about my body in front of her? And what comments do I make casually about how I look? And then am I placing this idea in her mind that that's what's important? No, I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to talk like that in front of her, which means I probably shouldn't talk like that in front of just myself either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I'm loving all this that we've talked about because again, it's like just, we've brought so much awareness, right? Mm -hmm. I think just within ourselves and really it's, I, I know a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from this because again, it's not talked about enough and it may sound, you know, as we're talking about, it's these simple little things like be kind to yourself because you hear that often, but if you really get checked in, like, oh my health. Mm, we are not, yeah. you know, like, so, oh man, this has been so awesome. Yes. I'm loving it. And I think oh. too, like any, if, if there's anything that I could give to other people, it is that idea of showing up for yourself, give yourself 
an hour a day. An hour is nothing. Even if it's an hour before you go to bed or wake up an hour earlier um, before you have to go to work or before your kids wake up, whatever that routine looks like. And give yourself space to just be and to give yourself that self-care that you need to really thrive and then show up in other facets of your life. And your mental health will thank you for sure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yes, girl. <laughs> is, there, is there anything else that you want to add to the, any of this? You know, well, you know, I could talk for hours. I know we could. We really could. <laughs> I think the thing that I would add is just recognizing that this is just a small sliver of a bigger conversation and that this shouldn't be the only time that you talk about mental health or think about your mental health is when you're listening to this episode of this podcast. This should be a continual conversation that you're having with yourself or a therapist or a partner or a friend or a child, like continue to have these conversations and surround this idea of normalcy around talking about how we feel, talking about how we're doing. If you are having mental health problems, it's okay to talk about it and, and allowing yourself to talk about it will also give other people the space to talk about it as well. And we can create that domino effect, but don't let this be the only or last time that you think about or talk about it. Like keep going with the conversation because we're always going to have to be managing and taking care of our mental health. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. Yes, girl. <laughs> so, no, it's just such great, like, you know, great little nuggets to take away. Yes, great, great, great little nuggets. Oh my hell. Jeez. Yeah, I, I am so grateful that you would have me and let me yes. talk about things that are so important to me. Yes, girlfriend, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on tonight, taking the time to share all your knowledge and to bring more awareness into the world. Because again, the more we share, the more we're impacting other people because we're putting light bulbs in their minds and, and altering their way of thinking, therefore mm -hmm. being, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We don't know until mm -hmm. we know. Yep. So, and now you're all responsible for taking care of yourself because now you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jamie, thanks so much, babe. Thank you so much, Micah.